committee will come to order. Uh, let me uh, thank our witnesses for, for bearing with us as uh, the voting takes place. Uh, in August, just before the fall of Kabul, the Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction released a report on the past 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. Sigur estimated that the war and reconstruction efforts cost American taxpayers more than $2 trillion. The war saw the deaths of nearly 2,500 U.S. servicemen and women and more than 20,000 wounded. Tens of thousands of Afghan civilians were killed and countless others were injured. But despite that high cost in blood and treasure, the United States struggled to enact a coherent strategy that would secure Afghan democracy and build strong governing institutions. We are here today to examine the missteps and miscalculations over the past 20 years that led to the ultimate failure of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. The tragic events of this past summer were the culmination of poor decision-making by both Republican and Democratic administrations going back to 2001. The failure to cement democratic gains in Afghanistan and to prevent the reemergence of a terrorist safe haven is a collective failure. It is a tragedy with many authors and origins. We're here today to find out exactly who and what those are. We have a distinguished panel of witnesses before us today. My hope is that they will help us better understand why successive administrations made so many of the same mistakes repeatedly in Afghanistan. Before turning to our witnesses, let me share my own views on what those mistakes were. First, the Bush administration took its eye off the ball when it invaded Iraq, diverting desperately needed troops, equipment, and humanitarian assistance from Afghanistan. It's a war that I voted against. Those resources could have made a difference in preventing the resurgence of the Taliban and building up Afghan governing institutions in their infancy. Second, the Obama administration adopted a failed counterinsurgency strategy after taking office. I was skeptical from the very beginning that that strategy would work. More than 33,000 troops were surged into Afghanistan, but given an extremely short time frame, just 18 months, to prepare the Afghan government to take full control. That withdrawal rate was repeatedly delayed as the weaknesses of Afghan institutions and security forces became all too clear. Throughout the war, every administration also unfortunately bought into the fiction that Pakistan would be a partner in peace in Afghanistan. Instead, Islamabad played a double game, continuing to provide shelter to the Taliban, even as militants targeted and killed U.S. troops. Third, the Trump administration signed a surrender deal with the Taliban that set the stage for precipitous withdrawal. That deal was built on a set of lies, chief among them that the Taliban would sever their connection with al-Qaeda. Throughout the negotiations, the Trump administration excluded the Afghan government and kept secret the details of its agreements from our closest allies, many of whom fought and died on the battlefield alongside us. President Trump even traded away the release of 5,000 hardened Taliban fighters, boosting the militant group on the battlefield this past summer. The political and security environment for our withdrawal was a direct consequence of Trump's surrender deal, and we should never forget that. And finally, throughout the entire war, the executive branch failed to keep Congress adequately informed, particularly when the war was going poor. poorly. Officials of both parties either misled or misrepresented the facts to Congress. 
They told us that Afghan security forces could assume full responsibility for Afghanistan's security. They told us that the Afghan government was taking corruption seriously and gaining legitimacy in the provinces. And they told us that regional actors like Pakistan were playing a helpful role with respect to the Taliban. None of that was true. In closing, we're here to learn what mistakes were made in the course of over a 20-year effort in Afghanistan. Only a full accounting of the situation will help us avoid making the same mistakes in the future. We owe that to the American people. We owe that to our troops. We owe it to those in the public and nonprofit sectors who dedicated years of their lives to improve Afghan democracy and governance. And we owe it to the people of Afghanistan, women and girls, religious and ethnic minorities who are most affected by our departure. Let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his opening comments. Thank you very much, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman. Um, as Congress uh, wrestles with the fallout from the administration's Afghanistan withdrawal, we're faced with two responsibilities. One is to look back and reflect on 20 years of conflict and gather lessons learned. These lessons should inform the future use of American power and, more importantly, define its limits. The collapse of the Afghan army after nearly 20 years of enormous expenditures, enormous expenditures, as the chairman pointed out, calls into question the efficacy of DOD's efforts to build partner capacity. Is it beneficial to build a foreign military in our own image when it makes them uh, over-reliant on U.S. technology and maintenance? What is the durability of these institutions in countries that lack a formal military tradition, lacks a central government, and place a priority on tribe or valley over nation? The collapse of portions of the Iraqi army in 2014 during the Islamic State onslaught highlighted similar issues. DOD was the lead for training and equipping in both Iraq and Afghanistan and was unable to foster security sector reforms to make these institutions more durable. The State Department must and should take a larger role. Our inability to effectively address Afghans' corruption hampered our diplomatic development and military efforts. We cannot accept corruption as a cost of doing business. Anti-corruption must be central to strategies in the future. If we look back in history, I think we have learned a lesson from this. Shortly after World War II, uh, we were very successful in nation building, rebuilding, in both Germany and Japan. Uh, after the uh, Korean conflict uh, went on halt, we were very successful in uh, South Korea doing the same thing. Uh, we have been unsuccessful since then, and it is uh, important to note that, uh, it, that the failures uh, in those uh, uh, efforts were in countries where corruption was endemic uh, to the culture. Uh, that uh, uh, focus on corruption has to be a very important focus in the future, as I think it will dictate what the uh, possible success of the country will look like uh, after a conflict. Additionally, the failure to administer our special immigrant visa program and assist American citizens on the ground is astounding. We must bolster efforts to assist those who serve our country and uh, served our country and improve any future versions of this program. Finally, we, uh, our approach in Afghanistan suffered from a lack of strategic coherence. What started successfully with a light American footprint and the quick removal of the Taliban evolved into more than 100,000 troops and a focus on counterinsurgency and nation building. 
We must better define our strategic objectives, assign uh, resources accordingly, and resist the temptations to do more than is necessary. The second and most urgent task in front of this body is to look forward and mitigate the negative impacts of U.S. withdrawal. This includes developing our counterterrorism plan, human rights roadmap, and regional approaches. These deserve the Senate's full attention, nothing less. After all, the news from Afghanistan is jarring. According to open source reports, the Islamic State will be in a position to launch attacks outside of Afghanistan in a mere six months, and al-Qaeda could be in a position to conduct external attacks in just two years. On the human rights front, women and girls in Afghanistan are worse off today than they have been for a decade. We must identify the right avenues to re-empower Afghanistan's women, minority, and youth. Our USAID implementers must have unfettered access to at-risk populations without Taliban uh, interference or uh, diversion. On foreign assistance, we should debate the limits of practical engagement. As Afghanistan careens towards a humanitarian catastrophe this winter, we must strike the appropriate balance between helping ordinary Afghans and preventing benefit to the Taliban. Many of my colleagues want to turn away from Afghanistan and focus on other issues. However, it is critically important that we don't waver from our, uh, in our commitment to oversight. I find it disappointing that the Secretary of Defense has refused to testify before this committee. I hope this can be addressed soon, as well as having <coughs> additional uh, briefings and hearings from Secretary Blinken, <coughs> Secretary Austin, and Director Haynes that will address the very real threats to Americans. It has been almost three months since my initial request. I look forward to working with the chairman to finalize these important discussions. Finally, I've introduced an Afghanistan oversight bill that is the support of nearly 30 of our colleagues. This legislation authorizes the task force responsible for the continued evacuation of Americans and our Afghan partners. It would also sanction the Taliban for human rights abuses, terrorism, and drug trafficking. Additionally, this legislation directs strategies to address the very real terror threat in Afghanistan. While we have held one initial meeting uh, with the majority staff on this matter, I'd like to see this matter move more quickly. With that, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield. Thank you, Senator Rich. With that, we'll turn to our witnesses. Um, Ms. Laurel Miller, Director of International Crisis Group's Asia Program and former Deputy and then Acting Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, and with us virtually, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, Diplomat in Residence at Princeton University and also a former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan at various periods of time in Pakistan, among other locations. So we thank them very much for sharing their insights. We'd ask you to summarize your testimony in about five minutes or so, so members of the committee can have a conversation with you. And we'll start off with Ms. Miller. Good morning, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of the committee, and thank you for inviting me to offer this testimony in which I will highlight five lessons to learn from the failure of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. First lesson, be very wary of regime change. A narrative has taken hold that because the invasion was motivated by counterterrorism, the nation building that followed was mission creep. In reality, the decision to not only chase the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks, but also oust the Taliban regime, meant it would have been the height of irresponsibility to make little effort to build something in its place. 
the U.S. started with a strategy that assumed it could eliminate the Taliban simply by killing many of them, and then other Afghan groups would come together and easily sort out their political arrangements. As reality hit, a shift to nation building began just four months into the mission. The die was cast by adopting a policy of creating a partner in Afghanistan and needing that partner to succeed at governing, U.S. success became dependent on Afghan government success. Second lesson, if your strategy depends on particular conditions, be sure that you can control them. Instead of shaping policy to avoid or adapt to obstacles, the U.S. adopted a policy that required surmounting obstacles. Foremost among these was Pakistan. From the first days after 9-11, the U.S. relied on getting Pakistan to cooperate in eliminating the Taliban, contrary to how Pakistan saw its own interests. Pakistani reluctance was perfectly clear. From the start, they said they disagreed with the U.S. strategy of militarily eliminating the Taliban, and they wanted to see the Taliban included in Afghanistan's governance. There were naturally limits to how far the U.S. would or could go to pressure Islamabad, and they knew it. Because strategic success in Afghanistan was not existentially important to U.S. national security, it would have been unwarranted and unrealistic for Washington to widen the war to include military action against Pakistan, a nuclear-armed nuclear nation of 225 million people some 8,000 miles away. Third lesson, recognize how much you don't know and embrace what you do know. Early on, lack of understanding of Afghanistan might be excused considering how little the U.S. had been engaged there during the prior decade, but more problematic was the failure to appreciate how poorly conditions were understood, and therefore how little confidence the U.S. could have that a bold strategy made sense. By the end, all the factors that led to the government's collapse had been well known for years, including the precarity of state institutions, the government's extraordinary aid dependence, the bubble effects of a wartime economy, and crucial weaknesses within the Afghan security forces, including ones that would understandably affect will to fight. Absorbing rather than resisting the facts in plain sight should have led much earlier to a judgment that the war was not likely to be won and that the main effort should be diplomacy, seeking a negotiated end of the conflict or at least of American involvement in it. Fourth, aid conditionality does not work if your strategy depends on the recipient's success. Because the U.S. was well aware that corruption was fueling support for the insurgency and political disunity was weakening the state, it tried repeatedly to address such problems by conditioning aid. Conditionality suffered from a fatal flaw. Because the U.S. had a policy requiring the government's success, cutting off vital aid would have been self-defeating. Afghan leaders knew that and therefore were not particularly motivated by conditionality. A fifth lesson. The mission proved politically unsustainable in the end because the extent of the American commitment exceeded the magnitude of the importance of the mission to U.S. national security. Now looking forward, Afghanistan is headed toward being the world's greatest humanitarian crisis. The country has suffered an enormous economic shock. Suspension of U.S. and Western aid, freeze of state assets, and effects of sanctions have produced widespread joblessness, hunger, and a severe liquidity crisis. The disaster already underway shows it will not be possible for the U.S. to both stand with the Afghan people and fully isolate the regime governing them. 
The U.S. needs to be clear-eyed about how best to advance its interests in Afghanistan and consider objectively the importance of helping millions of Afghans. Greater impoverishment of Afghanistan under the Taliban is likely, but a glide path to a lower level of international support would be more humane than allowing the economy and public services to tip over a cliff. This will require flexibility in providing aid beyond strictly humanitarian and some easing of sanctions. As the situation worsens in days and weeks, worsens in days and weeks to come, politically difficult decisions will need to be made. The Taliban cannot be made to be less Taliban, but there are many Afghans who can be saved. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, who is with us virtually. Ambassador, you're either muted on your side or. Are you able to hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rich, for convening this important history. This, this hearing, these are weighty issues, uh, and they will be weighty issues for a long time to come. Uh, I, I would give you two lessons learned, and they sound pretty simple. Be careful what you get into, uh, uh, particularly if it involves military forces, as we have seen in Afghanistan and uh, especially in Iraq. The uh, consequences of a military intervention are not just to the third and fourth order, they go to the 30th and 40th. And that we did not uh, uh, really seem to appreciate. Um, the second lesson, be careful what you get out of. That a withdrawal of uh, a US military presence, indeed diplomatic presence in this case, can have consequences as grave or graver than the original intervention. Uh, and the third, is the issue of strategic patience that overarches, I think, um, the previous uh, two lessons uh, and has been a huge, huge problem for the United States, not only in Afghanistan. Careful getting in. Um, in Afghanistan, I think we uh, did what we needed to do, that we were responding to 9-11. We did so with the minimal force. Um, I had the privilege of establishing our embassy there January 2002, just uh, uh, weeks after President Karzai was named in Bonn as the chairman of the Afghan Interim Authority. Uh, we knew why we were there, um, to ensure that there was never again an attack on the United States um, from Afghanistan. 9-11 uh, was seared into our brains at that time and subsequently for me. Uh, it was about American national security. That was the mission. Um, it was the mission when I opened the embassy. It was the mission when I visited uh, Afghanistan from Pakistan in the years 2005, 2006. It was the mission uh, when I returned as ambassador to Afghanistan 2011 to 2012. Uh, the ways and means of achieving that goal, of course, uh, prompted a lot of debate, uh, a lot of mistakes, uh, and confusion on the way forward. But the fundamental goal never changed. Uh, Mr. Chairman, if we did reasonably well going in, we did exceptionally poorly going out. We've all seen the uh, images 
uh, from from August, uh, seared in again into our brains of desperate Afghans clinging to a C-17 that took off. Doesn't get much worse than that. Uh, that was the conclusion of our endeavor. Now, uh, as you rightly said, both parties and both administrations, President Trump and President Biden, bear a great responsibility. Uh, when President Trump authorized talks uh, with the Taliban without the Afghan government, and I said this publicly at the time, these are surrender talks. These are not peace negotiations. And that is exactly how this has played out uh, in, in the... Uh, time since 2019. Uh, the February 2020 agreement, that was, that was again, a, a surrender document. We delegitimized the uh, government that we had said we supported. Uh, it is no wonder to me that there was no fight left in the Afghan military as they saw uh, the United States disappear over the horizon. Uh, briefly, looking ahead, uh, uh, what we have seen uh, will have consequences in many places for many years. Uh, we have emboldened Islamic uh, extremist movements everywhere, in particular in Pakistan, uh, where that country now faces a, uh, a threat from groups like the uh, Pakistan Taliban that aim at the overthrow of uh, government in Islamabad. So we will be fighting these struggles um, for a very long time. And finally, to return to the issue of strategic patience. This is one of our greatest failings, I think, as a nation. Afghanistan wasn't the first time. Uh, we had pulled out of Afghanistan after the defeat of the Soviets. Uh, the Pakistanis, according to their narrative, were left with the uh, uh, exploding Afghan civil war uh, and came to mistrust, as many others now have, the staying power of the United States. I heard it during my three years there over and over. We're with you on Al-Qaeda, uh, but don't expect us to turn the Taliban into a mortal enemy because someday you're gonna get on a plane again, that's what you do, and we're gonna be left with the mess. Um, uh, Pakistanis felt vindicated, I think, for about 15 minutes, and then realized that the threat to them was graver than it had ever been with, uh, again, emboldened Islam. <coughs> Islamic militants within their own borders. Uh, uh, so going forward, I hope we do find levers. Uh, we will need to work with others, obviously. We will need to work with the United Nations. Uh, uh, we will need to work with our NATO partners who also felt betrayed by our swift decision to, to, uh, to leave the country. Uh, we need to stay engaged. We need to do what we can to support vulnerable populations. Uh, I asked myself, did we make a huge mistake educating girls and asking women to step forward uh, into the military, into parliament, into business, uh, saying effectively, we've got your back until we didn't. Uh, so we have accrued a great debt there uh, that extends also to the thousands of Afghans who helped us in their mission. The SIV process um, has let them down. I'm a member of the advisory committee for a group called No One Left Behind uh, that has for years sought to move interpreters to safety. We left thousands behind. Uh, and that I think is a stain again on our national honor. So we need to figure out ways to go ahead. It won't be easy. We gave up the leverage we had, but
but we cannot give we cannot give up a fight that goes on with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll start a round of five minutes questionings, and uh, I'll start off. Uh, throughout the 20 years of our involvement in Afghanistan, the United States shifted from a narrow counterterrorism mission to a broader nation-building effort. That effort cost taxpayers, by a SIGGERS estimate, $2.3 trillion. So I'd like to talk about some of those key strategic decisions. Uh, to both of you, do you believe that the Taliban should have been included in the Bonn Conference in 2001? Did the Bush administration miss an opportunity early on when the United States was in the strongest possible position to demand Taliban disarmament? Uh, if you'd like me to go first, uh, sure, I could please. say, um, I mean, yes, in retrospect, the Taliban should have been included in the political arrangements for Afghanistan. They did represent a certain kind of constituency there, and their potency might have been greatly diminished if they had been included as just one of multiple factions. You might never have had a counterinsurgency an insurgency in the first place. However, I think to be fair, you have to look at what the thinking was at that period of time. The, the fervor uh, of the post 9-11 period for counterterrorism, the anger at the Taliban for not turning over bin Laden, and the perception that there was no more Taliban, that it was a quick victory, that they were eliminated and that it was only a mopping up operation. And so when you talk to people who were involved in the decision making at that time, I think it is apparent that it was not particularly realistic to expect that kind of uh, perceptivity about what events would unfold and how the insurgency would arise. I think you can look to somewhat later periods of time when there were overtures in the several years that followed uh, the intervention. There were some overtures from Taliban individuals who sought to make accommodations with the Afghan government. Uh, and the U.S. at that time, I think, should have had a greater sense of the value of allowing the Afghan government, President Karzai at the time, to make some Afghan-style deals to incorporate Taliban figures into governance. And that might have prevented the insurgency. It makes me think, is there an intelligence failure? We thought it was a mop-up operation. Uh, we obviously underestimated that reality. Uh, ambassador Crocker, do you believe Iraq, another place where you served as ambassador, was deemed a higher priority by the Bush White House? Did the administration pay sufficient attention to Afghanistan at a time that the Taliban were regaining strength? I, I was not uh, in or engaged with uh, Afghan affairs at that time, uh, Mr. Chairman, I was fully immersed in Iraq uh, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, covering the Gulf, including Iraq in that period, 2002-2003. Uh, uh, I, I would say this, um, uh, we're the United States of America. Uh, we actually can do more than one thing at once. Uh, we did so in World War II. We were able to uh, prosecute a uh, a total war and defeat both Germany and Japan. Uh, so I find it a little difficult to believe that uh, suddenly we don't have the ability to focus on two regional conflicts at the same time. Uh, the other uh, point I would make here is that we um, uh, didn't 
really <clears throat> seemed to um, understand what was possible and what was not. Uh, as uh, uh, Ms. Miller has said, engaging the uh, Taliban right away uh, uh, would have been politically impossible also inside Afghanistan. We would have had a Northern Alliance mutiny if, if, if we had done so. I don't think that was a, uh, a valid uh, interpretation at all. And again, had we surged more forces sooner into Afghanistan, we might have <clears throat> simply fueled a earlier and stronger insurgency. Yeah. So like almost every other question on the table about Afghanistan, the issues are complex, they are difficult and they are multiple. Yeah. It seems to me we took our eye off the prize and we went to a place where there were supposedly weapons of mass destruction and we found none. Uh, and we may be the United States and we may be a superpower, but when you have two regional conflicts but of significant consequence uh, and you take your eye off the, the main prize, which is where September 11th was emanated from, uh, I'm not sure that was the greatest decision. Let me ask one final question. Uh, President Trump's approach towards Afghanistan was, from my view, erratic, first promising a military victory before signing a surrender deal, as Ambassador Crocker has said, that saw the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners and the withdrawal of U.S. forces within 14 months, um, and a deal that which the Taliban made uh, good on none of it. So do you think that uh, that deal was a good one? Did the Taliban uphold their commitments? Was there any real way to have enforced them, Ms. Miller? A fundamental problem with the deal was one that you pointed to yourself, Mr. Senator, which is that um, the Afghan government was excluded from the deal, that it was a bilateral deal between the U.S. and the, and the Taliban. And uh, the reason why prior U.S. policy had been not to make a separate deal between the U.S. and the Taliban was that it was seen that that would greatly enhance the, the leverage and the appearance of legitimacy of this insurgency group, and it would embolden them and, and strengthen them both uh, at any subsequent negotiating table with Afghans, but also on the battlefield, too. So uh, I think there's reason to criticize that approach, though it has to be said that the prior efforts to get a negotiation going among the Afghan government and the Taliban and the U.S., um, failed, and I think that's why the Trump administration, looking for a way to get out of Afghanistan, um, took that less favorable route, one that was more advantageous to the Taliban. I do also think that inclusion of the prisoner release um, was a very serious error in the deal. And it's not um, particularly because of the 5,000 individuals who were returned to the battlefield. It's because of what that signified. That had the United States negotiating something that wasn't for the United States to negotiate. This was not America. These were not American prisoners. These were Afghan government prisoners. And the Afghan government wasn't at the table. And so the US making that agreement to release them 
was a signal that it didn't really matter what the Afghan government thought. It reinforced the Taliban perception that the government was just a puppet of the United States and the US could sort of roll them over on any kind of uh, agreement that it made. And because of that dynamic, it led to a six-month delay in, uh, in any kind of launch of peace negotiations, which was quite costly given how late in the game this was. Thank you. Senator Risch. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. First of all, let me say that I, I think this is one of the more important hearings that, uh, that we'll hold. Uh, I think it's really important that we look back uh, and uh, analyze what happened and, and what mistakes uh, that we made. And uh, so I, I'm sure as history uh, uh, goes along, there's going to be a lot of books written about this. I, I hope both of you, uh, from whom I've heard some uh, very... Uh, uh, introspective uh, thoughts. Uh, I, I hope you will be part of that discussion as history goes uh, goes forward. And the one of the important reasons I think why we need to do this is that um, the United States is going to face these kind of decisions again in the future. Uh, indeed, right now we're uh, we're looking at uh, at some uh, uh, conflicts around the globe that uh, uh, that. Uh, are beckoning the United States to, to get involved. And uh, I, I think that uh, as we uh, act like the superpower we are on the planet, I think all of these things that, uh, that have happened in the past uh, are important to look at. Um, as, I, as I said in my opening statement, uh, the culture in Afghanistan was uh, so different than the culture that we're used to dealing with. And uh, one of the things uh, that the corruption issue is, uh, is a huge issue as you try to uh, stand up a nation and, and move forward, uh, if you can't get a handle on that, if it's endemic in the culture, uh, it's a problem. Uh, we, we have a tendency, uh, I, I think, to look at past successes, as we did after World War II, where um, we were uh, importantly involved in nation building in both uh, Germany uh, and Japan, and then after the Korean conflict, uh, how we were involved in South Korea, and they were uh, wildly successful and those countries were uh, stood up in our own democratic uh, freedom, uh, human rights interests. And uh, since then, we have been uh, uh, pretty much unsuccessful in doing that. But we've been dealing with different cultures. And I, I, I suspect, and I, I think, as I talk with people uh, around the country, we all have a tendency to weigh these things and view these things uh, using our own American, deep American uh, interests that we've had over so long a period of time in freedom, democracy, and the, and the rule of law, and those kinds of things. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to swallow, but there are cultures on the planet that don't want this, or at least some of the uh, culture doesn't want it. Uh, certainly, we all make uh, speeches about how uh, all around the globe, people hunger for the freedoms that we have, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, all the other freedoms that we have. And, and yet, it is only, these freedoms are only uh, widely practiced in a small portion of the population of the globe. So I think these, uh, as, as we think about the policies as we go forward, I think every one of these uh, instances is very different. And I think every one of these instances needs to be... Uh, uh, it needs to be analyzed as we make policy decisions going forward. It's, it's pretty easy to sit here and, and uh, criticize decisions that were made over the last two decades. I mean, there's no question 
uh, that there were uh, bad decisions made. And there's also no question that uh, this is not a partisan issue. There were uh, uh, people on, uh, on both sides of the aisle that, that made decisions uh, that, that were not appropriate. But in any event, I'd like to hear your thoughts briefly, because I'm almost out of time, on the issue regarding the difficulty in standing up a government in our own image in a culture that doesn't reflect that. Uh, so, Ms. Miller, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think on the, the point about corruption that you made, I would say that if your strategy requires fixing corruption in a society where it is endemic and where you have a sort of patronage basis for society and politics, then change your strategy. Don't assume that you can fix the problem of corruption because there is simply no historical precedent anywhere in the world for fixing that problem in any policy relevant timeline through foreign policy and foreign aid. There just are no examples to point to. It's a generational challenge that has to be dealt with through organic and indigenous processes um, over time. It can't be done by the United States through foreign policy, to put it very bluntly. Well uh, so I, I think in terms of standing up the government, um, you know, I think it wasn't entirely a question of, of standing up a government in our own image. There were many aspects of the constitutional system put in place and the way that politics operated in Afghanistan that were, in fact, quite Afghan. Um, there was a lot of Afghan agency here in designing the constitution, uh, which was predominantly based on an earlier constitution they had. It was an extremely centralized system of government, far beyond ours or anything any American expert would have advocated for Afghanistan. And that reflected Afghan preferences, too, and had a lot of negative consequences for politics for the competition for power and resources and, and relates to the point about corruption. So uh, I don't think that it was a failure because we tried to impose democracy in Afghanistan. I think there was a thirst for choice among Afghans who turned out in droves in the initial elections there. Uh, and if democracy is principally about choice, then that's something that Afghans wanted to exercise. Um, but there are, there are many other lessons we can draw from, from the specifics beyond that. It's great insight, um, Ambassador Crocker. Uh, <clears throat> Senator Risch, uh, you mentioned uh, South Korea. Uh, South Korea is indeed today a, a model of um, uh, a economically sound democracy, but it didn't start that way. Um, what we were able to do in the case of Korea uh, was exhibit some strategic patience to, to see this as a long-term problem, a threat to our security, and that would need a long-term commitment. We made that commitment. Our forces are still there. Uh, it was absolutely the opposite in Afghanistan, of course. We became impatient when uh, uh, a government was unable to instantly create viable rule of law and institutions that are respected. That kind of thing takes years and years. Um, and there are certain inevitabilities that come with that process. One of them is corruption. If you have overthrown a regime uh, and swept away whatever uh, law and institutions may have existed, uh, you are starting over. You're starting from scratch. Um, 
uh, all of this takes a lot of time. And if you add large sums of money to the, um, the void of respected uh, institutions and rule of law, a bingo, you get corruption. Uh, you also have an inevitability of insurgency if your opponent, uh, your enemy, does not feel defeated. Um, the Taliban did not feel defeated because they ran. That is, uh, you know, when the, when the big guys come, get under the porch. And that's exactly what the Taliban did, taking a leaf from many chapters previously where uh, indigenous forces uh, went to ground in the face of a foreign military intervention only to emerge later in an insurgency. And that is exactly what happened in Afghanistan. One could see the early signs of that, uh, Senator. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan in that early period, March 2002, Operation Anaconda, uh, where we were undermanned and undergunned for the uh, challenge the, that Al-Qaeda and some Taliban gave to us, we saw individual Afghans trying to get through our lines, not to get out of the fight, but to get into it. Uh, that was a, an issue that was, uh, uh, we were all aware of it, our military and our civilians. So in the absence of total war, um, uh, you can pretty well count on an insurgency. And in the absence of strong, stable institutions, which can only be built over years, you're going to get corruption too. Thanks so much uh, to both of you for your, for your insights on this. Thank you. Uh, Senator Menendez will be back shortly. He had a vote in the Senate Finance Committee. I'll take my uh, time at this particular moment, and let me just uh, join um, our chairman and ranking member in thanking our, our two panelists for your service to our country. Um, I agree with much of what Senator Risch just said in regards to mistakes made by four administrations. And uh, in hindsight, it's a lot easier to see those mistakes. But in real time, it's more challenging, as everyone has pointed out. But I want to first underscore the point that Senator Menendez made, and that is the decision to go into Iraq when we thought they had weapons of mass destruction. That was a mistake of intelligence, um, at least that's as it was presented to us at the time. But there was no evidence that Iraq was involved in the 9-11 attacks. So we changed our mission in the Middle East at that time Afghanistan was, uh, as a result of the attack on our country, Iraq distracted our military, at least, from the mission in Afghanistan. So it's clear to me that that had an impact on our success in Afghanistan, if we would have not been also engaged at that time in an act of war in Iraq and dealing with the challenges in Iraq. Uh, I recognize that America could do more than one thing at a time, uh, but when we're engaged in two recent military operations and we haven't completed the first and the missions are somewhat inconsistent, it does, to me, uh, distract from our ability to carry out our responsibility in Afghanistan. I want to get to the issue of corruption. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, I thought you made an excellent point. We recognize that we cannot change a society overnight. We understand the patronage society. We recognize that. But where the America is filling a significant part of the financial needs of a country, 
there seems to me that there could have been safeguards put in place to make sure that the aid that we gave went to the people and not just to fuel the corruption of the principal leaders. And we, uh, this was over a 20-year period that we were unable to reach the people of Afghanistan to the extent necessary to get the type of popular support for the type of governance that they had, causing the, uh, the counterinsurgencies and the aftermath that we see today. So yes, I understand patience. 20 years may not have been long enough for some, but I think there was wasted time during the 20 years in trying to establish a more responsive government for the people of Afghanistan and the United States lessons learned there has to be a way that we can reinforce a governance where the people get the benefit of our assistance rather than the corrupt leaders. So, Ambassador Miller, I heard your point. You said never in the history have we seen a successful example. Corruption exists in all countries. I recognize that. But it seems to me that our engagement in Afghanistan actually assisted the corruption of the regime causing significant dissatisfaction among the populace for the United States' presence. I, I would agree that our assistance helped to fuel corruption. The, it was just an enormous scale of money to be pumping into a country with a very limited economy and where there was a lot of competition for resources, um, especially uh, on the military side in terms of large-scale contracting for transportation and fuel, which were just two of the areas where um, a lot of corruption has been, a lot of siphoning off of resources has been um, revealed and, you know, there are a lot of Afghans who became very wealthy as a result of American contracting there. Their you know, villas in Dubai don't build themselves. That's ultimately funded with American taxpayer resources. I think part of the problem, and it's a real conundrum, is that it's very difficult for us, given our system, uh, our political system and our foreign assistance system, to pace ourselves in these kinds of interventions. Initially, there were very small sums relatively spent in Afghanistan. As the situation worsened and it became a higher political priority, there was a perceived need and a, an opportunity to uh, gain appropriations of larger resources and then to have to spend them um, within the time scale of those appropriations. And so it leads to a, a dynamic where there's uh, an impulse to get as much funding as you can as quickly as you can and spend it as quickly as you can when it's a political high priority knowing that that's going to fade and you're not going to be able to sustain it over time. So it's very difficult for us to, to pace our spending in an intervention like this with one and two year funding cycles um, as opposed to longer term funding cycles that some other um, governments, for instance, the European Union have in their uh, civilian assistance programs. I don't, I don't have an answer to that. As I said, it's, it's a conundrum. Um, if less had been spent at the peak, there probably would have been criticism that not enough was being spent, even though the people involved in spending it knew the absorptive capacity was just not there to spend that much money that quickly and maintain the oversight that's necessary to prevent corruption. Lessons, le lessons learned, as I see it, 
is that we have to have a strategy to make sure that our engagement does not reinforce the greed of corrupt leaders. And that was, I think, absent in Afghanistan. Senator Johnson. If I could. I'm sorry, Ambassador Crocker, briefly. Yeah, uh, yes, if I could. Our most successful programs in Afghanistan cost the least and went directly to the Afghan people, uh, education and healthcare. The number of uh, students in Afghan schools when I arrived in 2002 was about 900,000, all boys. And when I left as ambassador in 2012, over 8 million, 35% uh, girls. Uh, similarly, in healthcare, we reduced dramatically um, the death rate from uh, infant and uh, maternal mortality. They worked, they cost less, um, and they went directly to the Afghan people. We should look for programs like that and avoid major infrastructure uh, projects. And I agree completely with uh, Ms. Miller. We need to look at our own budget processes. Um, our internal processes contribute a great deal to uh, waste uh, and mismanagement in Afghanistan. Thank you. I appreciate that response. Sen Senator Johnson. Thank you, Senator Cardin. I also want to thank the witnesses, Ambassador Crocker. Thanks for your service. Uh, read an interesting book well over 10 years ago. It was written by uh, members of our special ops that uh, served in Afghanistan. And their, their basic conclusion was that uh, we pr pretty well accomplished what we needed to accomplish before General Franks ever you know, stepped foot on the ground there. Uh, in hindsight, it's kind of hard to really argue with their conclusion, except for one point. Uh, Osama bin Laden had escaped from Tora Bora, and I think there's just a political imperative to do everything we could to track him down and bring him to justice. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, I have two questions for you. One, looking back, this is uh, obviously a retrospect. It's important for us to examine what mistakes were made. But uh, I think even more importantly, one looking forward having to do with uh, Pakistan. So first, the, the backward-looking question, to what extent was Pakistan complicit in harboring Osama bin Laden? And then looking forward, uh, obviously Pakistan's nuclear power. Uh, you're, in your testimony, you mentioned that uh, they're going to be under pressure from the Taliban. Uh, it's almost unthinkable to uh, contemplate the Taliban getting hold of, of the Pakistan government and those nuclear weapons. Uh, what do we need to do to prevent that? But, but first, uh, what do you know about the complicity of Pakistan harboring Osama bin Laden? Senator, it's a great question to which I don't have the answer. There's obviously been a, a lot of speculation over that, both before and after uh, the uh, Abbottabad raid that killed him. Um, Pakistan was a, uh, a reasonably, reasonably good partner in the... Um, uh, fight against al-Qaeda uh, leaders inside of uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, including several ops chiefs, number threes, uh, in the al-Qaeda organization, uh, uh, and enough pressure that while we did not find uh, Osama bin Laden in those uh, years uh, prior to his killing, uh, he was not communicating. Uh, so. I, I, I really can't say that uh, they were complicit in harboring him, that they uh, knew all about him and where he was. I just don't know. Going forward, uh, I think it is critically important that we uh, do some listening as Afghanistan's neighbors gauge their own risk and threat. Uh, as you say, it is an appalling 
thought uh, that the uh, Pakistani government could be so destabilized uh, that they would lose control over their nuclear weapons. Uh, and that is the point I made earlier. We, we have got to act like a global leader because, uh, trust me, this is now an absolute global problem. The uh, enormous boost that the um, fact and the nature of our withdrawal has emboldened extremists, Islamic extremists everywhere. We're going to be dealing that with that for a long time, and we're going to have to deal with it collectively. Well, the reason I ask the questions in combination, if we truly don't know Pakistan's, whether they were complicit or not in harboring Osama bin Laden, uh, based on the imperative moving forward, I think we have to give them the benefit of the doubt, and we need to do everything we can now to assist Pakistan from being overrun by the Taliban. Would you agree with that? I, I would. I, we again, we've got to be, we got to be careful. We've got to be measured, and we've got to be suspicious. Uh, uh, but I, I would judge the potential threat to Pakistan's own stability to be uh, so severe that we're going to have to figure out again. I would hope collectively uh, how that uh, that threat can be reduced. Mr. Miller, I, I think many of us on this committee. Uh, I know Senator Shaheen has been active in this issue. Uh, supporting the women in Afghanistan, I think we mourn their their upcoming, probably present loss of freedoms uh, that we helped establish for them. Um, it's kind of hard to just turn away from that. It's it's hard not to acknowledge the fact that uh, America, with with all the mistakes made, all the bad decisions on a bipartisan partisan basis made, uh, our intentions were good. Um, I know in your testimony you covered this, but can you just reinforce again what can we do. If or is there nothing we can do to try and reinforce uh, the gains that uh, the Afghan women made during during our time there? Yeah, I mean, there are understandable reasons why it might be the impulse in American policy now to isolate the Taliban regime, to punish the regime, to make good on what the United States long said to the Taliban, which is that if you take power through military means rather than a negotiated settlement, you will be a pariah regime starved of resources. On the other hand, I do think we have to consider what do you get out of a policy like that? What do the Afghan people, what do Afghan women get out of an isolation policy? What does the United States get out of an isolation policy vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban? And my conclusion, and it's a difficult conclusion to make and I've personally struggled with it, is you, you don't get anything at all. Uh, if there's any prospect of even slightly um, moderating Taliban policies, if there's any even slight prospect of having some perhaps secret cooperation with the Taliban on counterterrorism, it's not going to be by isolating them. It can only be through some engagement and through some relaxation of U.S. willingness to provide development aid that isn't directly to the Taliban government, but that could have the effect of helping them to reinforce their grip on power. We have to recognize that. The Taliban are resilient. They resisted enormous military pressure by the United States over 20 years. They are perfectly capable of resisting some financial pressure and efforts to use aid as leverage. And so I come to the difficult conclusion that 
some degree of engagement with the Taliban, avoiding particular individuals in particular ministries, uh, and some degree of aid to be able to continue programs, for instance, to support women and girls in Afghanistan, is what is in the greatest interest of the United States as well as the Afghan people. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Miller. If I just made just quickly, Mr. Chairman, I just want to make a comment because I think in both cases, the, the answers to my questions indicate that as many as mistakes were made in the past, we have to look at the reality on the ground now, and we need to do everything we can to move positively forward. And that may be some pretty hard pills to swallow, but it's extremely important for us to look at the reality situation now and how can we make that reality better. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you to both of our witnesses for being here. Um, Ms. Miller, I think I understood when you were giving your fifth lesson learned from Afghanistan, I think I understood you to say something like, Ambassador, Afghanistan has not been critical enough to U.S. security at this point for us to continue to stay. Is that paraphrasing basically what you said? Well, I think one of the reasons why it has been hard to um, have the strategic patience that Ambassador Crocker talked about is because at the end of the day, Afghanistan is not central to U.S. national security interests. Uh, and I, I think President Biden would not have made the decision to withdraw if he had judged it to be essential to U.S. national security interests. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. That's what I thought you said. Um, Ambassador Crocker, as I understand what you have said about Afghanistan is that you think it is long-term critical to U.S. national security. Do I misunderstand? Uh, you, you do not misunderstand, uh, Senator. Uh, we um, actively track uh, uh, threats around the world to our national security. There are many groups out there that would like to um, execute such attacks. Uh, but there is only one group that actually did it, and that was al-Qaeda sheltered under the Taliban. Um, it happened. These are the actors who brought it about. Uh, we have already seen a return of um, at least one uh, senior uh, uh, bin Laden uh, assistant uh, aide into his hometown of Jalalabad. Uh, uh, the band is coming back together again. And there is absolutely no reason to think that the uh, Taliban now uh, covering Afghanistan are somehow kinder and gentler uh, after two decades in the wilderness. Uh, they will not give up their ideology. Uh, they will not give up their Al-Qaeda ally. And the Islamic State actions against um, uh, civilians mainly uh, in Afghanistan now will virtually guarantee that. Uh, uh, Islamic State may be an existential threat to the Taliban. What they will not do in response is uh, bargain away their uh, uh, ideology. Uh, they will cling to it uh, even tighter now, I think, with the Islamic State threat. So, yes, um, I do believe that there is a threat to uh, American national security. Our defenses are far more robust than they were in uh, 2001, but you don't win a game relying exclusively on defense. And uh, I think that the decision made to pull, us, pull our forces out completely 
at a time when they were already minimal and during which the Taliban controlled not a single provincial capital, uh, I think that has put our security at risk. Um, thank you. I, I share that view. And I, I would argue that the strategic patience that you're talking about is really dependent upon the extent to which we believe we have um, a critical stake for our country and our national security in continuing to support um, military, our military posture in a place, as you pointed out with Senator Risch, like um, South Korea, like Japan, like Germany after World War II, and where we still have um, significant troops. I want to go back to the tragedy that a number of us have mentioned around women and girls, because Ambassador Crocker, I, I share your view that um, this is one of the most tragic aspects of our time in Afghanistan, a huge success story in that so many women were empowered, were able to go to school, but a tragic outcome when we look at the potential now for the Taliban to totally take away those freedoms for women. And I wonder if either of you can speak to, and, and I share, Ms. Miller, your view that we've got to continue to find a way to get humanitarian aid um, to help the Afghan people, even if that means that to some extent we have to work with the Taliban. But what leverage do we have at this point on the Taliban to try and support um, freedoms for women in the country, or at least a better station in life for women in the country? I think we have very little leverage over them. I mean, it's not zero. And you see that in what the Taliban are saying, if not entirely doing so far. They are trying to put a good face on their policies. They are saying things unlike what they said in the 1990s about the uh, protections for women and girls, the role of women and girls, girls' education, um, et cetera. Um, there are some women in the workplace still, particularly in areas where they need to interact with other women, and in other areas they are being excluded. So I by no means consider this to be something that should be taken at face value um, and trusted. Um, but there is the fact that there is some distinction in the public narrative they are trying to put out shows that they are aware of the interests of foreign countries whose support they are trying to uh, attract. And that's at least a little bit to work with, but I wouldn't want to exaggerate it by any means. Uh, I think there is also a role for the United States through its diplomacy to collaborate with other countries uh, that have influence over the Taliban, particularly Islamic countries, in trying to influence their policies and press upon them the fact that there are many Islamic countries around the world that, that allow girls' education and that have policies that are more open than the Taliban's. Um, so it will take a collective effort and some quite vigorous diplomacy on the part of the United States to marshal that collective effort. Thank you. In order to do that, it would be helpful for us to have our diplomats in capitals around the world, however, and not having them be on hold here in the Senate because there are objections from our colleagues. Thank you. Mr. Thank you. Chairman. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Miller, Ambassador Crocker, thank you very, very much for your service for our, our country. Um, I want to talk about the very beginning of our decision to go into Afghanistan and what we might have learned or done differently 
but uh, but I, I can't move on to that without acknowledging the the fact that we have, in many respects, been showered with shame in the way we we left. Uh, one, I think, a disastrous decision by the prior administration uh, to uh, surrender um, uh, through the talks uh, and, and agreement they entered into, and the continuation of that uh, decision by the current administration. Uh, and then, of course, it's it's a fateful execution of of the withdrawal. We've left behind thousands. Uh, we've broken promises uh, to friends and allies. We've abandoned uh, women and girls there. Um, uh, and of course, we put America and our friends and our national interests at much greater risk, as has been pointed out by Senator Johnson and by others today. Um, but uh, and by the way, I just note that that when there's a poll that says that most Americans want to leave Afghanistan. I, I wish that political people would say, let's let's point out to the American people, uh, do you really want to leave if there's going to be abandonment of our principles, abandonment of, of girls, and a d- degradation of our national security? That, I think, might lead to a different poll answer, but I, that's a that obviously a different point. I want to turn to the question of what we could have done at the beginning, given the fact that we were attacked in 9-11, that the Taliban was responsible for uh, al-Qaeda having a base of operations in their country, what, looking back, what should we have done instead? What could we have done instead? Uh, I mean, I remember I, I was in Afghanistan, uh, actually, as Ambassador Crocker was there, and, and uh, my wife said, are you getting used to the, I don't know, 10 and a half hour time change difference? And I said, no, it's the, the 1,000 years time change difference that I'm finding hard to get used to. It, it, it struck me that our, our, our mission went from a, a, a one of, of securing America from potential future attack to trying to build a, a democratic-styled country and that that was just a bridge far too far. So, uh, Ms. Miller, perhaps you could begin with just what what might we have done differently? Was it the expansion of mission that was the, the greatest error? Uh, and likewise, Ambassador Crocker would, would very much value your, your opinion on that, on that topic. So, in the alternative history, I think what you could imagine is that Instead of deciding, as the Bush administration did, that it had to make an example of the Taliban to other would-be harborers of terrorist groups around the world, that instead it made the decision to uh, violate Afghan sovereignty, chase the al-Qaeda perpetrators, uh, and punish the al-Qaeda perpetrators, and essentially ignore the Taliban or perhaps inflict some punishment on them, but not to the point of overthrowing them. This was an approach that the Bush administration derided as the old law enforcement approach to, uh, to counterterrorism that had been practiced uh, during prior administrations, go after the perpetrators. Um, and it was a very explicit decision and not without some at least small degree of controversy within the Bush administration to take that approach. I say small degree because there was, I think, in the State Department some awareness that, uh, you know, as in the words of Colin Powell, you break it, you own it. Uh, and so if you're going to engage in regime change, you had better have the strategic patience that Ambassador Crocker talked about if you're going to see it through, because the expansion of the mission all flowed from that initial decision to engage in regime change. Uh, would it have worked just as well to go after the perpetrators without overthrowing the Taliban? I mean, it's, it's hard to 
engage in these hypotheticals, but I think what we've seen is that elsewhere around the world since that time, um, that is the approach that has been taken. Thank you. Ambassador? Uh, Senator, I don't think there was an alternative. Uh, we, we gave the Taliban an out. Uh, we, we told them, hand over al-Qaeda leadership to us and we will leave you alone. They refused to do that. And I think that refusal uh, left us with no choice except to execute the mission as we did. Uh, it would be pretty hard to justify uh, at home or abroad that uh, the Taliban having refused to give up the, uh, the murderers of 9-11, of uh, that we could somehow um, go after Al-Qaeda and, and leave them alone. And um, when we were done doing that, just say thanks for your hospitality and, and go home ourselves. Uh, I don't think that was a viable approach, a viable approach either in uh, national security terms or in, in uh, political terms. Help me understand, did, did we uh, uh, make an error in, in going from um, uh, taking out the Taliban and removing al-Qaeda to a decision to, if you will, create a democratic nation of sorts? Was there, was there a, a change in mission that, that suggested um, uh, a, a, a doomed uh, uh, mission from the outset? I, I don't think so, Senator. Uh, let's recall that uh, in, in the wake of 9-11 and the uh, absolutely universal support for the United States at that, uh, at that difficult time led to the Bonn Conference uh, in Germany in early December 2001, uh, where the international community came together uh, under uh, UN auspices uh, to uh, set the stage for a new Afghanistan. The um, Afghan interim authority was formed there with President, later President Karzai as its chairman. Um, I, I, I don't think it would have been uh, possible or conceivable uh, for us to say, oh, we don't want to do that. Um, we're, um, uh, we're, we're just going to go after the bad guys, uh, forget all the rest of this stuff. I, I, to me, that uh, exists in some realm of, uh, of science fiction, frankly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, I have an immense degree of respect for the dedication of your life to the security of this country. I remember uh, being a first-term 33-year-old member of Congress and going to uh, Iraq for my first time meeting you and being absolutely mesmerized by um, your complete control of the set of facts on the ground there. Um, and so that makes it pretty shocking to me um, to sort of listen to what seems to be from you a complete lack of critical assessment uh, of our 20-year adventure in Afghanistan. And your answers to Senator Romney's question, an open-ended one as to what we would do differently, you seem to suggest we wouldn't have done anything differently in retrospect. Your writing on this, both for this committee and in public is about the theme of strategic patience, just doing more of what we were doing for longer. So I maybe want to just ask the question one more time, um, because that's the whole intent of this hearing, to understand what went wrong. Um, was there a design flaw in what we did in Afghanistan, or were the mistakes just around the margin? 
Because it's hard to see what happened a few months ago, the complete overnight disintegration of the government and military all at once, and, and read that we didn't do anything wrong for 20 years. So, I mean, let me just put that question to you again. Um, is your testimony that at its essence, our policy was right and we just needed to do it for longer? Or do you find any central flaws in our strategy and policy in Afghanistan over the course of 20 years? I, I thought I had been pretty clear on that point, Senator, in saying that the uh, process that President Trump launched of uh, negotiating with the Taliban and um, uh, without the Afghan government and its subsequent embrace uh, by President Biden, who even kept uh, the same Af uh, Afghanistan envoy, uh, w was a horrific mistake. Uh, uh, does that mean that the status quo should be uh, should just be continued? Well, of course it doesn't. Uh, look, when I when I was ambassador there, 2011, 2012, it was the height of the surge. We had over 100,000 American troops on the ground, um, and the Taliban was active, but it didn't control a single provincial capital. Uh, under the Obama administration, and subsequently, we we reduced those numbers by you know, 90%. Uh, at the time President Obama left office, I think we had 14,000 uh, troops on the ground and the Taliban held no provincial capitals. Those numbers dropped from there. Uh, and indeed, looking at the reporting I've seen, in that period uh, between the, the end of the uh, uh, <coughs> Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, uh, the Taliban was on its back foot uh, with a hugely reduced number of troops. So uh, I, I guess I just don't understand the point, Senator. We, uh, 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 we were drawing down uh, very, very significantly and yet still able to support the Afghan National Security Forces uh, in their effort to uh, ensure that the Taliban could not take and hold any urban ground. Well, your primary, uh, your primary criticism comes in year 19. So I, I, I'm asking whether there was a flaw in design for years one through 18. And your focus on provincial capitals um, ignores the fact that by 2017, the Taliban controlled 73 different districts. Uh, and, and so you're right that they had chosen not to move on provincial capitals, but they had control of sizable amounts of territory. Let me ask you the question this way. What does strategic patience look like moving forward? Um, had we decided to stay, how much longer? Um, in your, if, if President Biden had said to the American people, listen, we're gonna stick around for longer, what estimate should he given as to how long would be long enough? And, and, and that question, I think, Senator, is uh, one of the enduring problems we suffer from. Uh, give us a date, mark the calendar, uh, uh, tell, us, tell us when we're done here. Uh, President Obama, uh, of course, uh, when, he when he announced the surge, also announced the withdrawal timetable. Uh, I think that was a huge mistake. So uh, I, I, hear, I, hear you, I hear you in that, I hear you then. So then let me give you the chance to, ask, to answer it differently. Then if, if, if the timeline is impossible, what are the benchmarks 
And why would we think that those benchmarks could be achieved in another five years or 10 years if we were so far away from those benchmarks being achieved in 20? So what are the benchmarks and why believe that another 10 would allow us to achieve them? Well, again, the critical mission uh, uh, throughout those 20 years was ensuring that Afghan soil did not harbor elements who could make another attack on the U.S. homeland. And again, our ability to uh, keep the Taliban off balance and on the defensive with an ever-reducing number of forces, uh, uh, well, that's your answer. Uh, you're not going to get total victory in an Afghan context or anywhere else. We don't, we don't do total war. We don't get total victories. Uh, we were managing a security challenge uh, with a minimal number of U.S. forces and a much reduced budget impact, uh, that is what I would have hoped we could continue. And for the president, either president, to say to the American people, this is about conditions and not calendar. The, the irony is, of course, that President Trump said exactly that. Um, uh, had he stuck with it, we might be in a very different place today. And, and Mr. Chairman, seating back, I, I think one of the outstanding questions is whether you could have continued with 2,500 troops, whether or not uh, that was a sufficient number, knowing that the Taliban was on the precipice of taking these provincial capitals, especially had we uh, violated the agreement that President Trump had signed. Um, I think most observers would suggest that that number was not going to be sufficient, but that's a topic for another set of questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Paul. Ambassador Crocker, your contention that the policy never changed, that the original policy to go after the people who attacked us on 9-11 and prevent them from attacking us again, that has never morphed into nation building, I think is accepted by virtually no one. So I think it's important to state that at the outset. The Al-Qaeda threat had dwindled to a handful of fighters. There was absolutely no one giving us intelligence saying we were an imminent threat from anyone in Afghanistan. It had definitely morphed into nation building. The lesson of the two decade debacle in Afghanistan is not that we didn't stay long enough, it's that we stayed too long. The lesson of nation building in Afghanistan is not that it works, but that in Afghanistan it conspicuously failed. Billions of dollars were spent on nation building in Afghanistan. In the end, hundreds of thousands of uniforms, automatic weapons, armored personnel carriers, helicopters and planes were unceremoniously surrendered. The 300,000 strong Afghan military and police laid down their weapons with barely a whimper. The president absconded and all the while maintained, hey, I didn't steal that much as he fled. And you sit before us telling us that the lesson of America's longest war is that we didn't stay long enough after 20 years that we didn't practice strategic patience in the Afghan papers, your candid opinion was less supportive of the Afghan nation-building experiment. You complained that the Afghan police force was utterly incompetent. Others have commented on the graft of the Karzai family, on the drug dealing and outright theft by his brothers. Others have complained of provincial overlords so caught up in fleecing their subjects that the people actually willingly invited the Taliban in. And you think the lesson is that we should have stayed longer? The Inspector General for Afghanistan has documented the abundant waste of taxpayer dollars. From a $45 million natural gas station 
to a $60 million hotel that was never built as the contractor ran off with the money. Even in the end, 20 years later, in this experiment that you wish to strategically be patient with, we were sending $249 million in boxes of $100 bills every three months to Afghanistan. It's been admitted by experts even today, by members of this panel, that guess what? The aid doesn't fix corruption. You think sending $249 billion in $100 bills to Afghanistan every three months was somehow aiding and getting rid of corruption, and you want us to be patient? The lesson of Afghanistan is not that nation building works, but that it is a colossal failure. Afghanistan never was South Korea, and the parallels are scant at best. The lesson of Afghanistan is the same as it was for the British and for the Soviets. Stone Age clannish cultures are quite resistant to colonization and imposition of Western ways. Biden's exit from Afghanistan was a military catastrophe. No one can dispute that. It was an unmitigated disaster, but it doesn't change the lesson that nation building is a fool's errand. The lesson of the two-decade debacle in Afghanistan is not that we stayed, that we didn't stay long enough, we stayed too long. You've counseled that the US should have more strategic patience. I hope that doesn't mean you also advocate for sending troops back into Afghanistan. Do you suggest that we should return to Afghanistan? Senator, I do not advocate nation building. I said rather the opposite. Um, the construction projects were a bad idea, badly executed. You know, the Afghans build their own nation. We can't do it for them. I never suggested anything to the contrary. I did say that our success, most successful programs didn't involve bricks and mortars and didn't involve widespread corruption. The assistance we gave directly to the Afghan people in terms of improved educational opportunities, especially for women and girls, uh, and for much better health care. Now, look, I am not going to say and, and would never say, no, we made a mistake. Uh, we shouldn't have educated uh, Afghans. Uh, we shouldn't have stepped up for Afghan girls and women and ensured that they had the educational opportunities to be a full member of their society. Uh, that isn't nation building. That's national security, Senator. But you still argued. You still argued in the very end and up to this day that our mission was to that was a national security mission to defend the country from Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Almost no one argues that. People readily admit it morphed into another mission. That's part of the problem. It morphed into nation building, sending over two hundred forty-nine million dollars in cash every three months in hundred-dollar bills isn't exactly defending our national security. So I think your unwillingness to accept that the mission wasn't about preventing from Al-Qaeda and was national, uh, was nation building in the end. Really, I hope people will discount your opinion that we should have stayed forever in Afghanistan. Thank you. Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Rish, and thanks to the witnesses for being here today. Um, a, a point and then a set of questions. So one point is this, a hearing about lessons learned from Afghanistan has kind of a past tense. Um, uh, uh, tone to it. And I think we have to acknowledge that there, we're not talking purely in the past tense. There's an ongoing chapter that is a very important chapter. The United States military helped bring 70,000 Afghan families, Afghans to the United States during this evacuation. 
Um, the last chapter isn't, you know, people trying to get on planes. No, there's an ongoing chapter, about 70,000 Afghans who were thrilled to have an opportunity for a life in the United States and the ongoing need that we have uh, as members of Congress to make sure that their resettlement um, is as successful as possible. Three of the bases where the Afghans uh, have been relocated during the resettlement process are in Virginia, uh, Quantico, Fort Pickett, and Fort Lee. The last Afghan left Fort Lee this morning. Um, they, were, they had around 2,000, and Fort Lee is, is now, there are no Afghans there. We've resettled about 25,000 Afghans, have 45,000 still to resettle. Most are being resettled under a two-year DHS humanitarian parole. Congress needs to figure out what is the next chapter for these brave families who have helped the United States beyond that two-year period. We have work to do on that. We have work to do to support the resettlement process. I visited Fort Pickett last Wednesday, the day before Veterans Day, and I visited with our troops and with our contractors and with our physicians, but I also visited with a lot of Afghan families, and I, I told them tomorrow's Veterans Day in the United States, and I've got to give two Veterans Day speeches. If you were giving the speeches and said to me, what would you say to American troops and veterans? And what I heard was so emotional, so gratifying, so powerful, uh, one uh, young man told me the Americans saved my life three times. And I said, well, tell me what you mean by that. First, the American troops saved my life by coming to Afghanistan um, and rescuing us from chaos. Second, the American troops saved my life. I started to work for them. And when my life was in danger, they talked me into applying for an SIV and helped me get it. And I came to the United States in 2017, and I'm safe here. And I said, well, what about the third time? You came here in 2017. American troops saved my life a third time just two months ago because U.S. Marines went out and found my mother and father and made sure that they got to the airport in Kabul, and now they're here with me. I never thought I would see them again. And you saved my life a third time by reconnecting me with my family. So as we talk about Afghanistan, I wouldn't want to suggest that the last chapter are those disturbing pictures of chaos at the airport. No, the last chapter is a chapter we have to write for 70,000 Afghans, about 45% of whom are children, who we have brought to the United States, who we have given a new opportunity for a life in a land of better opportunity. And we have to make sure that that resettlement process works. And I'm going to do all I can to make sure that it does. I'm going to pick up a little bit on Senator Paul's questions about time. Um, and there's many lessons learned. One lesson that I hope we'll explore is congressional oversight congressional oversight of war. We're going to have a vote sometime in the next day or so, I believe, about repeal of the Iraq war authorizations. The, the war ended 10 years ago, but the authorizations remain on the books, and we're going to have a vote about whether we should repeal authorizations and not have a pending war authorization against a country that, now, that we now work as a partner with. And I, I worry a little bit about the war authorization for Afghanistan. It was passed in the days after 9-11, and clearly we needed to undertake military action to respond to that. But the war authorization had no geographic limitation. It had no real definition of what the mission was. It had no time limit on it. Uh, and I wonder if in the future, and if either of the witnesses have an opinion about this, uh, we'll be tested again, and we'll probably have to pass war authorizations again because it's a dangerous world but I'm pretty inclined to believe if we do these now, we should have review periods and sunset periods that force really in-depth analysis of what's the mission now? 
how, how, how are we defining success? What are the benchmarks? Should we continue to invest American lives and treasure in this military mission? Um, and, and I worry that the open-ended war authorizations that just kind of allow the executive to carry out war on autopilot um, are sort of an abdication of a congressional oversight responsibility. My time is almost up. Mr. Chair, if you would allow either witness to answer that, maybe I, I would love to hear what they had to say. All right. Uh, gentleman has adaptly used all his time asking the question and uh, positing the issues, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll let the uh, witnesses answer. I could offer a quick comment. I think what you've pointed to is one part of a very worrisome phenomenon of the over-militarization of American foreign policy. And I think there are a couple of respects um, beyond the one that you pointed to where this was evident in Afghanistan. One uh, was that when you are militarily engaged in a country, there's no problem getting the resources and support for the military effort but there's still a lot of problem getting the resources and support for the diplomatic effort. And there is just an enormous power imbalance, not only in terms of congressional policies and practices, uh, but in terms of what happens within the executive branch in the decision-making processes, whose voices are loudest and more numerous at the table in the National Security Council. Uh, you know, there's a reason why uh, these people get so many stars on their shoulder, and it's because they have a kind of can-do attitude that attracts support, and you want that in a general, but that doesn't mean that they should have such a determinative effect on U.S. foreign policy decisions. And the second way in which I saw it was that um, skepticism about the plausibility of diplomatic initiatives, particularly peace negotiation initiatives in earlier years, always got in the way of real robust support for those initiatives in a way that skepticism about the plausibility of winning the war never seemed to get in the way of putting the war fighting effort front and center in US policy. Uh, and that's a problem beyond Congress, but I think one that, uh, that you can probably influence through your oversight. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, first, uh, I really appreciate your taking the time to, to join this discussion. I have great value for your experience and service to our nation. Um, you and I were together in Baghdad in 2007 during the surge on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, in September of this year, you discussed the situation in Afghanistan stating this. You said, we've done grave damage to our friends and allies inside of Afghanistan, to our own national security interests, and to some of our most cherished values as Americans. Uh, I completely agree with your assessment. So in August, President Biden oversaw the tragic and failed withdrawal from Afghanistan. Due to this administration's weakness, incompetence, and mismanagement, the Taliban took over Afghanistan in a matter of weeks. Both General McKenzie and General Milley testified before Congress that they advised the president not to withdraw completely. They recommended keeping 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Yet President Biden refused to take their advice. President Biden ordered a complete withdrawal and he abandoned Bagram Air Base. Just days before the withdrawal, terrorists killed 13 service members at the Kabul airport. One of those fallen heroes was Riley McCollum of Wyoming. It was the deadliest day for the US military in a decade. 
Media reports indicate a terrorist responsible had been released from prison at Bagram Air Base when it fell to the Taliban. The consequences of President Biden's strategic failure have not ended. There are still Americans stranded behind enemy lines. The withdrawal was so rushed, the administration made serious vetting mistakes. Our allies and our partners are furious. Our enemies are emboldened. It appears to many people that President Biden still believes that it was, quote, an extraordinary success. No one's been fired over the withdrawal from Afghanistan. No one's resigned. There's been no accountability. So I ask on behalf of so many veterans I saw in Wyoming the last couple of, last week over Veterans Day, this question. Who at the Department of State should be held accountable for the strategic failures and disorganized plans? Yeah, Ambassador Crocker. Who should be held responsible for the strategic failures and the disorganized plans? Senator, that, um, that's a question that perhaps Congress could answer uh, by holding, um, holding other hearings, because I do think that answer is important. Uh, I'll give you a, an historical parallel that I hope we don't uh, pursue any further than we already have. I was in Lebanon uh, in the early 1980s as political counselor. Uh, I was there when the embassy was bombed in 1983, uh, April, and I was there when uh, the Marine barracks uh, were bombed in, uh, in October. Uh, the blame reached no higher than the commander of the Mao, now a MU, Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, Colonel Tim Garrity. Uh, uh, he was the only one to pay a significant price. No one above him. Uh, uh, in the chain of command, military or civilian, uh, uh, suffered any consequences for that horrible lapse. Fast forward uh, all these years later, uh, it's the Marines again at uh, an airport. Uh, it is the Marines again in a tactically only disadvantageous position uh, who paid the price. Uh, those Marines weren't born in 1983. Uh, their parents probably weren't born in 1983, but I guarantee you every Marine out there then knew the story exactly and they did their duty anyway. Um, and I hope, I hope that in assessing responsibility, we will not stop at the new commander or the division commander there at, at the time. And again, as I've said, and as others have said, there is plenty of blame to go around here. President Biden was the sitting president who ordered the final withdrawal, he owns it. Uh, but it is equally true that President Trump set us all on a course that led to uh, what, what we're dealing with now. So but Ambassador uh, Crocker, after, after, after President Biden's strategic failure in Afghanistan, we have seen the consequences of this weakness all across the world. China has aggressively flown dozens of military planes over Taiwan's air defense zones. China is also building up its military, testing hypersonic weapons, and emboldened Putin is amassing a large Russian military buildup with, uh, they're doing this on the border with Ukraine right now, including an estimated 100,000 troops. Russia is threatening Europe's energy security, withholding gas supplies to Europe. North Korea's launching ballistic missiles from submarines, and Iranian helicopter repeatedly buzzed a U.S. naval ship. Iranian-backed Houthis stormed the U.S. Embassy in Yemen 
and held local U.S. employed staff hostage. What actions, Ambassador Crocker, must the United States take immediately to reestablish a deterrent and prevent the destabilizing actions of so many adversaries around the world? Senator, the United States needs to reassert its position as a global leader. Uh, you know, we led the world from, from 1945 up until the last two presidencies. Um, President Biden said that he would return us to the world stage in a leadership role. Well, this would be a great time for him to take the concrete steps uh, toward that end, to uh, reassure our allies that America is not withdrawing from the world, and, and to do that where necessary in concrete terms. Um, look, everybody gets tired, I suppose, of, of leadership. Um, we, we have led the world, uh, not always for the best, but overall, I think we've been a hugely positive force on the world stage uh, for over 70 years since World War II. Uh, um, my view is we need to keep playing that role because if we don't, no one else will. It's not that the Chinese will replace us. They can't uh, and would not even try. Uh, it's that no one will. And we then re-enter a balance of power system, uh, which is great until it gets unbalanced as we saw in World War I and World War II. So uh, it is this critical need for the US to lead, uh, for President Biden, who has certainly talked to talk on that and then did everything opposite in Afghanistan for him to reassert uh, his intention uh, for both our allies and our adversaries that uh, the United States is not withdrawing from the world. Uh, thank you, Mr. Thank you. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your service uh, and your testimony. Um, start with you, Ms. Miller. I've been listening carefully and we know the facts uh, that uh, President Biden inherited. Uh, I think he inherited an impossible hand. Uh, the Trump administration uh, first pressured the Pakistani government to release top Taliban commanders uh, who played a key role in the ultimate uh, takeover of Kabul. Uh, they then, as you've testified, uh, undercut entirely the Afghan government uh, by not including them within the negotiations, um, signaling to the Afghan people that we had no interest uh, in the long run uh, in supporting that government. Then we essentially ordered that government, strong-armed that government to releasing 5,000 prisoners that were in their custody. Then we said uh, to the Taliban, don't attack U.S. forces, but continue to attack the Afghan forces with impunity. Then we agreed to other measures that limited the scope of our own operations. And then President Trump said, we're gonna have all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan in April. And then criticized President Biden when that date passed. It was an impossible hand the president was dealt, President Biden, by his uh, predecessor. But let, let's look forward now, because the, the time to try to use our influence to pressure the Taliban um, before the takeover of uh, Kabul um, obviously has passed. So the question is now, how do you assess the prospects and what do you think has to be our strategy uh, in getting the Taliban to agree to the conditions that we've put forward and where we're trying to rally the international community uh, to continue to join us. Things like an inclusive government, things like protecting the rights of women, girls, and minorities 
and things like making sure that Afghanistan is not used uh, as a platform for organizations to launch terrorist attacks against the United States and others. How do you assess, given what you know of the Taliban, what the prospects are using the leverage of money and international pressure to achieve those goals? Thank you. Uh, Senator, the Taliban are going to be Taliban. <laughs> there is not going to be any leverage that can be used against them that will cause them to change their core ideology or their core policies and practices. Um, I don't expect we're going to see elections in Afghanistan. Um, I think if there were any greater inclusivity in the government in the sense of appointing a few more uh, representatives of minority groups, those people would have no power in the government, even if that was done. They are a, a small, secretive, uh, cliquish group, and they're going to govern Afghanistan that way. That said, there is some prospect of engaging with them on a modest to-do list of items that could have some benefit for women and girls and others in the population. Uh, there is some prospect that they would allow some programs and projects supporting women and girls to go ahead uh, if there is engagement with them in, a, in what they regard as a more positive rather than punitive way. I don't want to overstate it. I'm not suggesting there's going to be a transformation of the Taliban. Uh, but I do think that there is some um, modest room for negotiation with them. And on, um, on the, I think for the US, crucial, crucial question of counterterrorism, I think there is scope for um, private, non-public uh, engagement with them to not to get them to expel Al-Qaeda from the country, not to get them to declare that they are breaking ties, um, but to get them to do what they said they would do in the agreement signed with the US, which was fairly limited, which is keep a lid on them. Uh, and there, there is, I think, some prospect of that, but I don't think we'll hear about it publicly and it won't be something you can use as a justification, therefore, for engaging with them. And it's important to work closely, or at least to um, talk <laughs> uh, extensively with Pakistan and others about that because other countries in the region of Afghanistan are worried about the terrorist threat, perhaps even more than the U.S., because it's more immediate for them. Well, thank you for uh, uh, that answer. I agree with your skepticism on the Taliban, but uh, we need to continue to use the tools we've got. Uh, Ambassador Crocker, I just have sort of a, a one-word uh, question to you. Uh, you mentioned in your testimony, Pakistan. It seems to me we should right now be engaging much more fully with the government of Pakistan uh, with respect to uh, the way forward uh, in Afghanistan and the region. Um, what's your assessment uh, as having someone who served as ambassador there and many other places in the region? I, uh, Senator, I think it is, it is critical for us to step forward um, uh, uh, with Pakistan. Uh, they have a lot to answer for, to say the least. Uh, we have to be very focused, though, on the consequences for Pakistan and for the rest of the region and indeed internationally. Uh, uh, if they are seriously weakened um, uh, as a government, uh, it would be, we, we have nominated um, a superb individual as ambassador, Don Blom, uh, who knows how to do this stuff. 
served with him uh, in Iraq. Uh, it'd be really great if uh, the Senate could uh, confirm him and uh, get him into position to uh, to to uh, lead those talks for the U.S. inside of uh, Pakistan. Uh, again, uh, you know, it is a nuclear armed nation. Um, it faces a threat, of course, from the Pakistani Taliban, as it does from the um, uh, jihadi forces uh, focused on Kashmir, forces uh, that were created by Pakistan at the time of partition, and now which they have lost control of. Uh, at the same time, it is a perfect storm, if you will. Uh, the policies of uh, Prime Minister Modi in India, in my personal view, uh, have um, uh, angered and uh, uh, disenfranchised, if you will, the Muslim population of Kashmir. Uh, so here we are, um, uh, a resurgent Taliban, everyone around is taking notes uh, in a complex environment uh, where the lid could really blow off of it. So yes, this is a moment for all-in diplomatic engagement, uh, talking in the region and talking beyond with our, our, uh, our traditional allies. Uh, we, we need to get on this. We are not going to be able to do very much unilaterally in Afghanistan. Uh, we, we've given up that leverage. Uh, so we need to work again with the United Nations, uh, with neighboring states, with our uh, established alliances like NATO uh, to figure out uh, how we are going to contain the forces that our withdrawal in, from Afghanistan has set in motion. Thank, thank you, you Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Miller, thank you for being here in person today. Ambassador Crocker, thank you for your service and I uh, appreciate your participation. I want you to know that I wish the very best for your wife's speedy recovery. I have her in my prayers. Uh, Ms. Miller, I'd like to turn to you to first talk about frozen, Af frozen Afghan assets that are present here in America. As you know, the Biden administration has frozen some $10 billion worth of Afghan assets here. Uh, the administration's hope seems to be that through financial leverage, they can somehow control and moderate the way the Taliban governs and treats its citizens. In my view, the only leverage we have left with the, with the Taliban is the financial leverage that we have in place right now. Sadly, all other aspects of leverage have been taken off the table. Um, according to press reports, in October, Taliban negotiators have asked the United States to unfreeze these $10 billion worth of financial assets. Uh, in October, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo uh, said that the sanctions would remain in place uh, and at the same time allow for the legitimate flow of humanitarian assistance. This seemed to open a window. Uh, I'll come back to what the State Department said the month prior in September. The State Department indicated that they were gonna send some $64 million worth of aid and assistance humanitarian assistance to Afghanistan via UN agencies. Um, I am very concerned about how this might happen. You in your own testimony, or you in your, in, in your, your statements have said that um, the Biden administration has now a sum of each policy, I believe how you worded it, uh, that is some sort of effort toward engagement, some toward isolation. Uh, and in your testimony, you noted that we're on a collision course between policies of engagement and isolation. And my question for you, uh, from your perspective, does the Biden administration have a clear strategy with respect to Afghanistan, one that will keep pressure where it belongs and not enrich or bail out the Taliban at a time when its control over the gov 
over, over the government of Afghanistan is frankly quite teetering. I'd be very interested in your analysis on what the Biden administration might hope to achieve here and whether they have a clear strategy to do that. Well, my observation is that uh, we're in a phase of, I would say, uh, the administration feeling its way toward a policy. I don't think there have been any clear public pronouncements yet that would make it evident what the policy is, uh, though there have been some statements of what the limitations are at the moment of what the U.S. Um, is prepared to do, such as the statement from the Deputy Treasury Secretary that you, uh, that you identified. I think we're, we're not seeing a lot of clarity publicly about what the policy is because my, well, my interpretation is it's because the policy is still being formulated uh, and that there is a desire to continue to help Afghanistan through humanitarian aid. And the United States has been generous with strictly humanitarian aid provided directly to Afghans through UN and NGO agencies. Um, but that uh, beyond that, it is unclear how far they will go, um, recognizing that humanitarian aid alone um, cannot prevent the kind of hum humanitarian crisis and economic collapse that is already happening. Um, if you're only giving humanitarian aid, then you are in a situation like this, you're pretty much guaranteeing a perpetual humanitarian emergency uh, because it does not provide jobs, it does not get the economy started, it does not deal with the fact that there's just a lack of cash in the Afghan economy now. There are a number of proposals that are under development by the UN, the World Bank, and others to find some ways short of unfreezing the central bank assets of Afghanistan that could inject some support and some money into the Afghan economy. Using the World Bank, using uh, the UN, um, it's not a perfect solution, these ideas, and uh, it can't be guaranteed that this would have zero positive effects for the Taliban to consolidate their grip on power, but it could save a lot of Afghan lives. Well, I certainly appreciate the, the need to save Afghan lives. We've seen far too many loss based on the failure of our execution there. At the same time, we have an Afghan government that is teetering. They're infighting. They don't have experience governing. Uh, the last thing I think we should do is provide any avenue to bail them out right now. Uh, and I think we need to be extraordinarily careful as we look at uh, any, any step toward unfreezing this assets. At this point, I don't see any appropriate way to do that. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, thank you to, to both of our witnesses for some very important insights. There's a lot more ground to cover, uh, but uh, the pressing time of other commitments won't allow us to do so. Uh, but I think you've both provided some very important insights. The record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, November 18th of 2021. I'd ask uh, members to ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than Thursday. And we certainly would look forward to your answers as further helping us understand what's happened over the last 20 years and what lessons are to be learned. I think we've gleaned some today. With the thanks of this committee, the hearing is adjourned.